0: Welcome to Roscast episode 6. Somehow we're already halfway through series 1. I'm really proud of the pieces that we've done so far and I'm very excited about what's to, to come this year. This month though we have a reading from Melissa. She introduces it very well so there's no need for me to do that and I will pass it straight over to her. Over to you Melissa.
1: Since becoming chair of the LGBT network at Bernardo's, I've been kind of feeling more and more like I should be better informed about LGBT topics that somebody might come and ask me a question. I feel like a kind of ambassador for the community now and I definitely feel like I don't know enough yet about that world. So I um, bought a, a book of essays, called we can do better than this 35 voices on the future of lgbtq rights um, which has been interesting i've been working my way through it and today i'm going to read to you one of the uh, pieces that i think is mo- most had most impact because it's been because it's so kind of clearly argued it's called if it's broke fix it and it's written by Amelia Abrahams, a journalist, editor, and author from London. From the age of seven years old, I was obsessed with football. My life revolved around practising kick-ups in the garden, playing Euro 2000 on my PlayStation, and watching Bend It Like Beckham on loop, a classic lesbian origin story. My parents allowed me to be as much of a tomboy as I wanted, but when I was ten and becoming increasingly naughty, they sent me to a new school, a convent school. Suddenly, everything was gendered. Girls were required to wear skirts, not trousers, and we had to do needlework club under the watch of a terrifyingly strict older nun. The greatest horror came during the first PE lesson, when it was revealed that girls had to play netball and boys had to play football. Eventually, after much campaigning with the football coach, I managed to have this rule overturned. But the message to my younger self was clear. You can't do what you love because of your gender. Okay, so me not being allowed to play football with the boys when I was 10 is hardly a gross injustice in the grand scheme of things. But it's one of my earliest memories of being put in a prescriptive gender category. I was reminded of it recently, when a friend asked me to write a story for her magazine about the inclusion of trans and intersex people in sports. At the time, I knew of a few trans sports stars like American triathlon competitor Chris Mosier and mixed martial arts fighter Fallon Fox. I also knew that sports is a world with very little LGBTQ visibility and that the topic of trans and intersex people competing in elite sports is shrouded in controversy. Beyond that, I understood woefully little about the subject. I'm embarrassed to say that I'd always slightly avoided the conversation about trans and intersex inclusion in sports, partly because I knew how complicated it was, and partly because, dreams of bending it like Beckham, long forgotten, I rarely understand what's going on in sports anyway. In the end, I spent six weeks on the article. The subject was as vast and technical as I'd guessed. There are many differing opinions, from scientists to ethicists to sports peoples, but here's the top line. At club or recreational level, trans and intersex people can generally play for the gendered team that they identify with, although whether they're accepted is a different story, or they can choose to play in mixed gendered teams. At the elite level, however, many sports are divided into men and women's categories and to determine which you can compete in, there are tests involved. In the past, Olympic athletes have gone through invasive genital inspections and DNA testing to determine their gender. Today, testosterone seems to be the deal-breaker. In World Athletics and International Olympics Committee guidelines, Athletes' testosterone has to fall within a certain limit if they want to compete in the women's categories. This limit is wider for trans women, who must also have been medically transitioning on hormones for at least one year. For trans men on testosterone competing in men's teams, there is no limit. These rules have been put in place with the aim of encouraging fairness, but don't always achieve their goal. On the one hand, some trans and intersex people cannot compete in the Olympic category of their identified gender because their testosterone is not at the required level. On the other, some sports people, particularly cis female sports people, complain that trans women who do get to compete have an unfair advantage, not just because the testosterone remit is broader than for cis women but because, generally speaking, people who are assigned male at birth tend to have a bigger muscle mass or lung capacity, potentially enhancing performance. While this is true, many trans sports people report that taking transition hormones decreases their sporting ability, and studies have found that hormone therapy reduces muscle mass and drops oxygen consumption. One recent study, however, found that trans women who had been taking hormones for two years were faster than cis women. Overall, scientists cannot seem to agree on whether trans women on hormones have an advantage or a disadvantage over cis women. One reason why the International Olympics Committee, the IOC, delayed plans to lower the testosterone limit for trans women ahead of the 2020 Olympics. And so the debate rages on, with trans athletes caught in the crossfire. When asked whether the transgender New Zealand weightlifter Laurel Hubbard should be allowed to compete in the Olympics, for example, cisgender Australian weightlifter Deborah Ackerson commented, I feel that it's, if it's not even, why are we doing the sport? In pursuit of fairness... Some organisations and institutions have banned or tried to ban transgender women from competing. Sporting body Fair Play for Women have said that they do not believe that trans women should be allowed to compete in female-only sports at all. In early 2020... Three cisgender female high school athletes in Connecticut launched a legal case against two transgender classmates on the alleged basis that their competing has deprived cisgender girls of track titles and scholarship opportunities. Similarly, in March 2020, an Idaho state law declared that girls or women's teams in schools, colleges and universities will not be open to transgender students who identify as female. The law has been challenged by civil rights groups as a breach of Title IX, the 1972 US law that bars sex discrimination in education, and in August 2020 a federal judge blocked the ban. In October 2020, World Rugby banned trans women from competing in contact rugby, claiming that it put cis women at risk of injury, a broad assumption about the physicality of all trans women. Then, while writing this essay, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Tennessee passed bills to implement statewide bans on female trans athletes, laws urgently being challenged by organisations like the American Civil Liberties Union. These types of cases lead to headlines like this one on the BBC News website Transgender Women in Sport Are they really a threat to female sport? Feeling concerned by these stories, I went looking for examples of trans and intersex people who have fought to compete in their sport by taking on the system. Another reason the article took so long, I got a little obsessed. I discovered Renee Richards, an amazing American tennis player who fought to compete in the 1976 US Open after transitioning. Richards took a case against the United States Tennis Association's genetic screening process all the way up to the Supreme Court and won, allowing her to compete. I also read about Mara Gomez, the Argentinian footballer, who in December 2020 became the first transgender woman to play professional league football for a women's team, despite enduring criticism on social media that her inclusion is unfair. On the field, you can have speed and strength, but that doesn't help you if you don't know how to play football, she said in response. I always hold up the example of Messi. He measures 1.6 metres, 5 foot 7 inches, and is the best player in the world. Most famous, perhaps, is the case of the South African middle distance runner and Olympic gold medalist Casta Semenya. A female athlete with naturally high levels of testosterone, she was subjected to intrusive gender testing which she has spoken out against. Eventually, governing body World Athletics, formerly known as the IAAF, ruled that her level of testosterone gives her an unfair advantage over other women, and it was decided that she has to take hormone suppressants to reduce the amount of testosterone in her body if she wants to compete. She contested this ruling, but in September 2020 lost the appeal. In February 2021, Semenya announced that she's taking the case to the European Court of Human Rights. Her lawyer said the challenge is for all women, although experts note that the scrutiny Semenya has experienced particularly affects women of colour and women in the global south and intersex women. It's easy to picture the effects of all of this discrimination and policing. A trans kid with a passion for sport might see the stories above and believe that biology is destiny, or that they're not welcome in sports at all. Research from Stonewall suggests that this is true, finding that while one in eight LGBTQ plus people avoid going to the gym or participating in sports groups because of fear of discrimination and harassment, This rises to two in five for trans people specifically. Intersex people are also likely to be put off. They might see stories, like Casta Semenya's, and feel discouraged from a career as an athlete. And what about non-binary people? Sports divided into male and female teams offer no place for people who identify as neither. As Robbie DeSantos, director of sport at Stonewall, put it to me, Sport is an exceptionally powerful tool for social change and for making people feel a sense of community and belonging. But by organising competitions by gender, we create obstacles to non-binary people's ability to access sports and the life-changing impact it can have. While I do not identify as trans, intersex or non-binary myself, reading all of the above, I felt the familiar sense of frustration For all of those times, I felt excluded for being a woman, or gender fluid, or for being queer. When I finished writing the story, I also felt extremely guilty. Guilty for avoiding the topic of trans and intersex inclusion in sports because it had felt too complicated. That was precisely why there was no solution to this problem. Why no one has worked out a better system for the one that we have, which is clearly broken. This brokenness does not just apply to sports, although sports is a very good example. It applies to various parts of our society. Research is showing that in certain countries more people than ever before are identifying outside of the gender binary. Although this is not a new concept, there are countless examples of cultures who did not think of gender as a binary until colonizers imposed the idea. This is especially true among younger generations. The Pew Research Center, for example, found in one American study from 2019 that 41% of Gen Z, defined defined as anyone born in 1997 and beyond, surveyed, identified as neutral on the spectrum of masculinity and femininity. They've also found that 1 in 5 American adults say they know someone who goes by a gender-neutral pronoun. Even beyond these studies we know that there are now many people who do not identify as cis male or female. So why is the world not set up to reflect this reality? Try to go one day, let alone a week, without encountering the gender binary and you'll be hard pressed to succeed. Public toilets, mandatory prefixes on forms, male and female clothing sections, they all ask us to choose a gender. When we interact with people on transport or in shops, they tend to make assumptions about our gender and let us know exactly what those assumptions are by calling us sir or madam, or else assuming our pronouns. So much of our lives is constructed around the idea that there are only two ways to experience your gender. We split everything into binary categories and ask people to choose one, usually the one assigned at birth, or else be left out. As a consequence, gender-variant people's ability to partake and succeed in the world is inhibited by a system that excludes them or sets them up to fail. Non-binary people in some of the essays in this book offer examples explaining how misgendering makes them feel like they're not real and that, worse yet, exclusionary attitudes from society can perpetuate violence. On this, Lauren Lubin, a non binary runner, documentary maker, and campaigner for non binary inclusion in sport makes a point that I found interesting. Lauren said that they love running because, in a world that says no to them at every turn, they can just put their sneakers on and go without anyone stopping them. For Lauren, sport offers the potential to escape social structures that can be exhausting, oppressive. If the disjunction between a strictly binary approach to gender and people's experiences of living outside this binary has a negative impact on people's lives, we're doing something wrong. The system is broken and it's up to us to fix it. The positive news is small shifts towards greater inclusivity for trans, intersex and non-binary people in sports are starting to be made. On a grassroots level, there's been a blossoming of initiatives to better include LGBTQ people. Among these are more training and awareness around gender neutral pronouns and a push for the introduction of more gender neutral changing rooms. Raising awareness and platforming LGBTQ sports role models is also vital, which Stonewall are are focusing on by asking LGBTQ sports ambassadors to give talks to young sports people. But there's still more work that can be done, says Robbie DeSantos. While attitudes are improving, we know that lesbian, gay, bi and trans communities still feel unwelcome in sporting environments, often starting from a young age. When it comes to elite sports, campaigners are challenging existing models and starting conversations about more inclusive versions. In her TEDx talk, Trans ultimate frisbee player Jenna Weiner asks us to question our fundamental assumptions about why certain people are naturally better at sports than others. Campaigners like her point out the logical failings of arguments that exclude trans women from sports. For example, that if size and strength are the basis of the argument for making things even, then what about the massive discrepancies that already exist between cis competitors? that in sports which are skill-led, with physical strength or speed being slightly less important, such as skateboarding, golf and fencing, which are all gendered at Olympic level, it makes very little sense to have gendered categories as the deciding factor in judging your ability to take part. Winer calls for sports that are less binary and for more mixed teams. Others suggest we need to do away with gendered categories altogether, since as long as they exist, intersex and other people with naturally higher hormone levels will be policed, and non-binary people must pick a gendered category that does not apply to them. Plus, using testosterone as the bar in sports enforces a culture where trans women who want to play elite sports feel they have to medically transition with hormones in order to qualify, or else not compete at all. Some experts have suggested that we could categorise by height or weight. It would be great to see these kinds of ideas from white papers turn into more real-world experiments or trials sooner rather than later, since discrimination is currently so rife. More research is also needed, given that the narrative around trans women in sport having an undue advantage is lacking in robust evidence and doing a disservice to athletes. DeSantos from Stonewall agrees. There is still a lot of prejudice across the sporting world, particularly for trans and intersex athletes whose bodies are constantly scrutinised and monitored in the public eye, he summarises. Suggesting that strength is the only component of sporting success undermines the complex mix of teamwork, talent, tactics, strength and agility which athletes know make up real sporting success. Beyond sports, in other areas of society, we are gradually seeing the emergence of more options when it comes to gender, too. Despite the derision of right wing and conservative pundits, think Piers Morgan, over the last five years, British schools have been introducing gender neutral uniform, uniforms, while many public institutions now have gender neutral toilets. In Sweden, Gender-neutral schools have had positive effects on children. Researchers found that their pupils are less likely to gender stereotype or gender segregate, while other research has shown that gender-neutral textbooks have led to more mixed-gender applications to typically gendered courses. This would suggest that less policing around gender is also a positive step in diminishing sexism. The next frontier is a widespread implementation of third gender categories. Countries such as Argentina, Australia, Canada, Denmark, the Netherlands, Germany, Malta, New Zealand, Pakistan, India and Nepal now have gender-neutral third category options for passports. In November 2020, Belgium joined in, deciding to offer an X option. It is shocking to me that in 2020, when so many people do not identify as male or female, this is not more widespread. Campaigners are still fighting for these options to be introduced in the UK, as well as America and many other countries, but arguments over how this could pose a threat to security or lead to increased fraud are often brought forward in response. Without this change, non-binary people do not have legal recognition and so cannot, for example, register at the doctors or get married as their lived gender. Notably... The option of identifying as non binary was also excluded from the UK's 2021 census. This undermines non binary people's right to participate in society and to have their existence recognised. These steps are hugely important, but they are just the beginning. We have a lot of work to do before society reflects the myriad ways that people experience their genders. We need to take a long, hard look at the structures we've built from sports to physical spaces to legal framework, and bring them up to date. Understanding that current systems are broken and need to evolve is not about doing away with the categories of male and female altogether, but acknowledging that there is a whole spectrum of expression in between these poles and around them. This might be messy or complicated work, but it's urgent work too. It's a matter of basic inclusion. And one that brings the world in line with the realities of the people living in it. Beyond that, it's also a chance to celebrate trans, intersex and non-binary people's infinite talents.
0: Thank you so much Melissa, that was really interesting. This is a subject where I tend to try to listen rather than speak because I don't know enough about it, so I really appreciate you choosing um, the reading today, though it does kind of mean that I don't necessarily have a lot to say. But the format of this podcast demands that I give a response, so I'll, I'll have a go. To me, this at least some of this issue seems to be the age-old problem of social inertia, right? Where... Part of society wants to change faster, um, in this case to accept people in the way that they present, while part of society fears that change for all kinds of reasons and finds ways to try to slow it down. In in this case, though, there's a sort of interesting subtlety where I I think that there's lots of individual sports clubs that would be fine with... That would be and are fine with accepting people in the way that they present because they know the person in question and they don't doubt their motives and I guess that's what the the reading refers to when it talks about you know this being less of an issue at a club level or an amateur level and it's only a problem at a very professional level um But of course those clubs are members of larger institutions that they need to follow the rules of and the people in charge of those larger institutions often don't know the person in question um they don't doubt you know they they don't know anyone else like them more importantly and so they do doubt their motives and that must be a i don't know a tremendously humiliating experience to go through for the person in question where your motives are are doubted um i don't know it's difficult there there are obviously no easy quick fix solutions um it's something that's going to take time for my part i guess i feel like one of the best things that those of us who do want to see the world change faster can do is to amplify the voices of those that experience these injustices and want to talk about them um, and to use our power in the organizations that we're part of to elevate those voices so yeah, I think what I'll what I'll take away from this is that I need to be more aware of those kinds of situations and listen more, and where possible, yeah, use my my influence, my privilege to to bring bring forward those stories to to a wider audience. That feels like that feels like the most you know, it feels like the most useful thing in this situation that, that I can do. So I'm going to try and do it. Thank you.